Welcome everyone to Reset Salon podcast. Once again, uh, your hosts, Ed McGuire, Julie Albright, and Brian Hayashi, we're here to explore the dimensions and implications of this crazy time that we've been living in. And today, our theme is surviving and rebuilding from a COVID-19 world. So we're looking forward. We, we're not as much interested in diagnosing problems, but looking for uh, solutions and paths forward that are going to be positive. And hopefully we'll give all of our listeners some, some ideas and inspiration to go forward and multiply with good ideas and even better intent. And our guest this week is Dennis Santiago, who's an old friend of mine and, and happens to be a... Uh, kind of a, a renaissance man of sorts. He's uh, a military policy analyst, a technologist, a, you know, a sportsman, and many, he's many other uh, disciplines and uh, skills. But uh, most importantly, he's just a great human being, and we're really thrilled to have him with us tonight. And we'll get to him in a little bit. But first, I'd like to turn the mic or the podium, as it were, over to Julie to give us some context for the conversation. Lottie Dottie, we like to party. You may remember hearing that line or others from the song Lottie Dottie over the years. Dougie Fresh and Slick Rick sang that song or rapped uh, in 1985. It's become one of the most sampled songs in hip-hop history. I saw a quote recently from Dougie Fresh, which got me thinking about this topic of rebuilding. Hip-hop is built on rebuilding, on taking what was, a lyric or a beat or even a sound, sampling it, remixing it, maybe even changing the tempo or pitch, but using what was as a building block for something new. And here we are in this COVID moment, faced ourselves with rebuilding society after both social unrest and over a year of lockdown that's decimated many of our cities and many of our lives. Dougie Fresh, the beatboxer of the La Di Da duo, talked about this process of rebuilding. I believe it was after the hurricane blew through New Orleans. He said, I think the rebuilding of the city has to start with the spirit first. So the music, the vibe, the connection spiritually with the artists. Everybody out here is the main key. Although he was talking about New Orleans post-Katrina, I think Dougie is on to something. That we have to start with the spirit first when we rebuild. But how do we do that? The upside or silver lining of this pandemic is it's given us pause, a chance to slow down and take a good hard look at ourselves in the mirror, both individually and collectively as a society. And we can think, who are we? Who have we been? And do we like who we've been and the way we've been living? If the answer to any of these questions is no, now is the time to pivot to reinvent ourselves, this is the moment that we can. What better time than now? La-di-da-di. Some artists are leading the way, like Robert Vargas in downtown Los Angeles, who, after the Starbucks across the street was destroyed, 
came in with his paints and his brushes, and he painted a mural on the wood boards that lined what were the windows of George Floyd with the word justice in large letters underneath. He later painted peace, love, unity on the crosswalk on the corner, setting a new spiritual tone for a city sent reeling by the protesters. The violent protests, pillaging and looting, coupled with the pandemic, have emptied our cities. A friend of ours shot a video in Midtown Manhattan this week where store after store after store sits empty in an area normally bustling with fashion and people. Now it's a ghost town. So who do we want to be? Although we've lost much, this is a once-in-a-lifetime or perhaps once-in-many-lifetimes opportunity for change. What weren't we doing that we want to do now that the sheer momentum precluded us from doing before? The artists, be they musicians, writers, painters, or poets, create out of whole cloth new things, new ways of seeing. So how can we use that same spirit, the spirit of inspiration now, to rethink what we've been doing, to create more sustainable cities, sustainable lives, to rethink our economy, our supply chains and jobs? The moment of destruction is also the moment to start anew. So here we are, Lottie Dottie. So like that Slick Rick song says, TikTok, you don't stop. So let's not stop. Let's go forward and start with our spirits first on both an individual and a city level in the spirit of rebuilding and reinvention. I'm so glad you're all here and I'm looking forward to the discussion on surviving and rebuilding from a COVID-19 world. And with that, I'm tossing it over to Brian. Hey, Julie. La-di-da-di-da, indeed. It's been interesting to watch internet architectures, how much has changed and how much has not changed since the onset of the World Wide Web back in the early 90s. And one of the most fundamental changes that's taken place is the shift in attitude from hey, if the website goes down, then we have to have all hands on deck to this idea of what's called microservices, the idea of being able to break up the way that you get things done so that instead of having to be everyone be there, you think about organization as being a more resilient lattice of different services that can be rebooted if, if should something go wrong. The reason I, I, I think about this is that in the spirit of reinventing ourselves, I look at what are the things that we are using as people to coordinate and communicate with each other. And last week, I had a chance to have a, a, a chat with our friend of the podcast, Dennis Santiago, and he's telling me about some of his adventures with uh, Ham Radio and his ability to reach across the world and to hear what's going on in a different part of the globe. How is the vaccine rollout going on there? And how does it differ from what's going on here? The thing that I found inspirational in what Dennis was sharing was this idea of 
how can we take the things that we're using right now, like Facebook and Clubhouse, the new audio program du jour, but within that super fancy outside, there is a germ of, I think, something really useful there. The idea of a group of maybe nurses always being available on a clubhouse, in a clubhouse room to answer questions. The notion of handymen who might know how to put things together. So if, if things are breaking down, you might be able to reach out to them and, and say, hey, I've got a question about this. And to be able to have an answer on what to do. If we should run out of a certain type of food, like what can we do as an alternative? How can we MacGyver out, ourselves out of this situation? And I think about organizations like hotels who are organized around hospitality and the idea of making, orienting things around the guest experience. And so la-di-da indeed, I think somewhere in all of this shit, pardon my French, there's a, there's a pony. And this pony is, is that if people are willing to be of service to each other, man, it's amazing what can be done. And with that, I'm going to toss it back over to Ed. Thanks, Ed. Thank you, Brian. And I uh, appreciate the optimism. We are seeing certainly a uh, boosted mood, in, uh, I guess, around the world as vaccines start to make their way around the population. And certainly, you know, Israel has led the way. And now, if it's not a, major a majority or a supermajority of the citizens there, they've really been leading the way. And, and I think providing some hope and optimism that the pandemic is going to be behind, almost behind us. I was uh, speaking to my uh, almost 80-year-old father, who finally moved back to his house after being spending a year kind of sequestered away. And people believe that this period is behind us, but things are different. We look around and, and many things have changed. Many businesses have closed. Many organizations have recast themselves to operate as distributed organizations. And I think in many respects, it's uh, we're going to see a lot of stickiness of new behaviors and new ways of communicating, relating, and doing business for better or worse. And uh, you know, as we reemerge into our hopefully very brave, <laughs> but not pure brave new world, we're going to have some principles that will guide us going forward that will allow us not to miss what we should have been paying attention to, pay heed to lessons that have come out of the experience over the past year, and then I think most importantly, to cherish the values that we have become apparent to us uh, as we have dropped our figurative masks as the literal mask had gone up, and we really realize what's important and what's fundamental and essential going forward. So as we look forward to rebuilding going forward, now that we mostly have survived the worst of this pandemic, what comes next? And we like to think about that. And one of our favorite voices is Dennis Santiago. And Dennis, I would love to get your thoughts on what you think about when we talk about surviving and rebuilding from a COVID-19 world. All right. Now it's my turn. So I got to tell you guys, all right, I, I'm so inspired. So I looked up la-di-da and said, I need to see the lyrics. And so I typed that into my phone. I said, I want to see the lyrics. And it came up. Here's the thing, though. It's in Korean. Literally, I can't read it because I can't read Korean. I don't know what, you know, but that's the first thing that came back. So in terms of remaking the world, okay, you go from hip hop to K-pop and that's the new world. Here comes the music. Okay. In terms, I mean, you know, for people that don't quite know 
you know, like, what does this guy do? Because if you look at my Facebook page, you know, you, you probably couldn't really tell what the heck is I do for a living or, or what it is I spend my, my days doing. So today, as part of heading a committee on that is looking into uh, something run by the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, a, a project called Project Reach, which is all about rebuilding and all about recovering from uh, the effects of COVID. I had to prepare a script, essentially, uh, you know, a production plan for a town hall that's coming up next week on the 24th, I believe. And the section that I needed to, and I'm moderating it. So, you know, so I get to be Johnny Carson or either that, or although everybody wanted to think said, no, you know, maybe because it's post COVID and it's tumultuous, maybe you want to be more like Maury Povich or something and run it that way. But the usual setups of the regulatory organization saying what they're going to talk about. And then I get to one of the guys that's an economist and we get to talking about, you got eight to 10 minutes. What are we going to emphasize? And he wanted to emphasize economic projections that basically say to encapsulate the historical repetition of things in the 19, in, in the beginning of the 20th century, in the aftermath of the Spanish flu, we had the roaring 20s, which was like a gigantic party. The projections apparently from the economists are that the bounce back from post-COVID-19 look like a, at least the next 18 to 24 months looks like a massive bounce back beginning to occur. It's a bounce back that won't look anything like it was before because the other thing that we got to talking about is that in the space of one year, very similar to the, 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 the Spanish flu pandemic, in the space of one year, we have evolved the economy about a decade's worth of change. And that has caused a tremendous amount of displacement of the workforce, a change in the fundamentals of how much, you know, what is a living wage? What is a sustainable wage? What is a wage that can support home ownership and all kinds of things that are going on now? And so we kind of got to talking about, well, we need to emphasize that as this bounce back occurs, everybody is going to have to be very, very adaptive to where they can make a living next. Where do they fit into the economy next? Because it won't ever look the same, you know, because this is scientifically, it's what engineers and scientists call entropy. It's a one-way street. You can't go back. You, you just have to continue to adapt going forward and you have to keep changing, you know, la-di-da what the heck, right? So we get past that and then we start talking about, you know, so what are the things that are going on that people are looking at? And the two areas of emphasis that come up for this town hall are the saving of home ownership in America, which is a very big deal. Uh, it's, it's driven by fear because of the effects of COVID-19. And the most fearful agency around right now, it turns out to be the Consumer Finance Protection Board in that they put out a, a note on the 1st of March that basically worried that 6% of homes in the United States are in some form of forbearance or uh, non-performance. Out of that, about 2.1 million homes did not make a January mortgage payment. And they're a little bit worried that that is a sufficient number to cause, if they all go bad because we don't get our act together, it could cause the housing market to crash, not to the extent that it did in 2008, but sufficient to retard and overwhelm the recovery path of the economy that, that they're projecting if that doesn't happen. So 
policy-wise, it's going to be kind of an interesting discussion when, when that takes place. The other thing that was emphasized, and I think it's a very important one to emphasize, is that small business in America took a very big hit in uh, 2020. And they, they took a big hit in two areas. One, the way that they make money changed radically into forms that are never going to go back or some of them will uh, fold back, I think. The most important of which is purchase of goods and services went virtual. And a lot of that isn't gonna come back to brick and mortar. So you're gonna see a lot of empty commercial space in the future for those businesses that were, were profiled so that they could not adapt. Others went virtual and I think are going to come back. And I think among those is a restaurant industry. So one of the more interesting things I got was as I started to meander about town, and I mean, and you know, I didn't meander about town haphazardly. I had my mask on whenever I did, and I, I have had two COVID shots, and so I am, I now have what what I like to call a vaccination passport that allows me to do things like I actually hugged somebody the other day. It was so cool. I haven't done it in such a long time. It's just like great. But the foldback of that for uh, services like restaurants is that um, it costs money to go virtual. So the, the price that you paid if you ordered online and did a pickup was elevated by the fact that they also had to pay the online company. And as they go back to being able to service people in person, they are reducing the prices of what they charge, or, or some of them are, in order to give back. To people because they they basically say the last one said to me no you ordered that online don't order that online you just call up and we give you the regular menu price and if that sounded a little oriental it's because it was a full place so you know and they uh, whoever was on the phone or, or, or actually whoever was in the store was was talking like that to me and i go like really you'll do that and they go yeah because you know if we don't have to pay the online vendor to take the order well, you know, there's no need to spend that much, you know, buy another Thai iced tea or something, right? Yeah, which is all really good stuff. So I think we're going to see as part of the 21st century version of the Roaring Twenties, some interesting effects are going to come as, as people and businesses adapt to a new reality that was accelerated by 10 years, an entire decade, I think, of, of industrial change occurred in a very tight space. That's why you see, I think a lot of people are just really, really taken aback by it because it's a bit too much of a shock to the system from a sociological standpoint, but we're gonna to adapt to it, I think. And where I think we're gonna to adapt to it pretty much the same way we adapted to it a hundred years ago. And we're gonna have a, have a bit of a party and being Americans, about a decade from now, we're probably gonna wake up with a big hangover from partying too much because that's just what we do. But uh, we're going to have a good time in between. And um, who knows? We may come out of it in better shape than we thought. So from the point of view of change, where we're going, it's not, it's not dire. I don't think this is a time to think that we should be depressed anymore. I think it's a time to wake up. And remember, it's spring. The sun is out. The trees have leaves on them again in many parts of the world. And this is a time to enjoy, you know, the COVID virus does not like bright sunlight and warmer temperatures. It does not do well. And that's the beginning of the party. And I think that's where we are today in March of 2021 on the very edge of looking at COVID-19 in the rearview mirror. 
I, uh, to Brian's point, as I talk to people around the world and get the on the ground from, you know, hams and, and hams are, are, are an interesting bunch when it comes to reporting on the ground situations, because one of the things that amateur radio operators do in this world is they act as disaster communications people, which means that they are trained uh, as a culture to report about situations on the ground. And they're quite compact and, or, and organized and efficient about it. So universally, here's the interesting thing. As far as vaccine distribution and progress, the United States has actually done a very good job compared to most other parts of the world. The other parts of the world are uh, in what you would think are other first world countries. They're having teething pains in terms of getting their vaccine programs rolled out. Uh, mostly because they tend to have centralized governments and the centralized governments are trying to solve the problem on a nationwide scale where the United States, which has a distributed government, is trying to solve the problem on a, a much more local level. And if you look at uh, the third world, interestingly enough, where these places are smaller and more decentralized, if you look at them on a region basis, you know, continent by continent basis, they're also trying to solve these things at a more local level, and they're making pretty good progress as well. And, you know, that kind of has an implication, I think, one of the, from a government and policy analysis standpoint, I think there are some very good academic studies that will come out of COVID-19 and the COVID-19 response, particularly the vaccine program response, in terms of if you just look at policy by the numbers, I think there, there's something to be said for distributed tumultuous societies in terms of their ability to adapt on a much faster basis to crisis. I mean, they'll argue about it, but total effects are, if you look at the numbers and the, and the penetration per on timeline uh, and the efficacy of what's going on, they still have lockdowns in, in many parts of England, Europe, and, and stuff like that because they just don't have enough vaccines. Their biggest argument in the EU apparently is that they cannot, the Central European government is the only buying authority and they're, they're allocating it out according to models run by Brussels. And it's not, re, it's, and a lot of other countries are kind of complaining about it. So Brian, here was the most interesting conversation about it in terms of the British apparently have gone off and they go like, you know, we're not part of the European Union anymore. So they're going off and buying vaccines on their own. And so their vaccine program is, is somewhat ahead of the rest of the continent. And I overheard a conversation because it's digital radio and you're connecting different parts of the world. So I listened to one. It was a, a British guy with a, a Southern England accent, an Australian guy and a New Zealand guy. And he was complaining about how difficult it was to buy stuff from the European Union as far as vaccines were concerned. And the Australian and the New Zealander both chimed in at the same time. And they said, we told you not to do it. It took you 25 years to get your country back. You know, that's the whole Brexit thing. <laughs> encapsulated into one sentence. So these are the kinds of conversations that go ac across the world right now. And but the point of that is people are looking at what's happening with a better and better sense of humor as time goes on. And I think that above all speaks to what humanity can do and its ability to adapt to even the most dire things. If anything else right now, I, I see things like my faith in the ability of the human race to overcome things is really been boosted by, by what has happened. You know, acrimonious as it was, it turns out everybody was doing the right thing. And we're only beginning to discover that. 
I am now, I've talked too much. I understand I get really, really ebullient. So I'm just going to shut up and let somebody else. Well, you know, Dennis, you brought up a, a number of really interesting threads. One uh, point that st- is kind of sticking with me is we're brought up the, you know, the affordability of real estate, right? And it, and we've just had this massive stimulus that's injecting an enormous amount of liquidity into the system. Uh, and there's actually two points that I'd want to make. One is that uh, you know, real estate and many assets are getting more expensive by traditional metrics. Uh, I don't think that we've fully priced in the impacts of, of what inflation or hyperinflation could look like. And I think a lot of you know the concepts of fiscal austerity that were top of mind a decade ago now seem to have just been tossed right out of the window. Um, the, the point is that when you do have asset bubbles, you know, those who are who, who are not participating get left further and further behind. So we have stimulus checks going into a lot of uh, bank accounts right now. Um, the flip side of this, and I think which what ties into some of your other comments is how this this concept of decentralization is coming back in or the benefits of decentralization are becoming far more prominent in uh, certainly with Bitcoin. Now it has hit new all-time highs. It hit uh, 61,000 recently. And and it was just just 18 months ago, it was under 4,000. So Bitcoin is, has gone through quite a revival. You have this enormous interest uh, in NFTs, which are not particularly decentralized. But y- I mean, you had alluded to the concept of you know a federalized approach to, to vaccines and, and recoveries and you know, living here in New Jersey. Surprisingly, New Jersey is doing a pretty good job of making sure that people uh, get access to the vaccines. There's not a lot lot to go around, but it kind of makes me think of, uh, you know, Nassim Nicholas Taleb's concept of anti-fragility that, you know, these, you, we did see a lot of systems break early on in the pandemic when we were hit with this big problem that large organizations, uh, governments, authorities were not prepared to deal with. And we've also seen, you know, these large centralized institutions, you know, have, have you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of them, uh, their credibility has been impacted, frayed, if, uh, if not completely broken, whereas the concept of individuality, uh, self-sovereignty, we were, we've been talking about that in, in some other con- conversations is, is becoming increasingly important. And that is, you know, is, is paramount when we move to much more of a distributed uh, economy. And Julie's written about this in uh, quite extensively, the, the concept of digital nomads, that is now a, it's an acceptable uh, lifestyle for people who belong to and contribute to big uh, multinational companies. So we'd love to get your thoughts on those two topics. One is like the asset bubble and th- that impact of how do we ensure that the people who are getting left behind that are just starting out, for instance, that, you know, how do we make sure that, that everybody has a fair shot? And then secondly, how does maybe does decentralization provide us a way to have a more equitable distribution of effort and uh, returns and distribution of, uh, of value? Well, that's a, a very interesting questions. And uh, I, I will start I'm off. Sorry, by... I, that's my going back to my analyst background. We always like to stuff these multi-part questions in because we know we might not get another chance. So sorry about that. Ah, yeah, no, no. Um, so my first knee-jerk uh, thing that I have to say is, so Nassim Taleb and I share something in common in that both of us were part of the naysayers between 2005 and 2008 that all got ostracized by the financial community because we said untoward things like 
we're not so sure about these subprime securities that are being issued, and we're really not sure about uh, exchange-traded funds being issued on top of them, that they may constitute something called a systemic risk. And Taleb, uh, people like me, uh, went around talking about uh, what happens when you stress a system to the point to hit what is, in, in his parlance and, both, and my parlance, a discontinuous junction where the old system completely falls apart and you have to adapt to a new system. And it's those discontinuities that test societies and whether or not the society can make the jump across the gap that has been opened up by whatever it is they did. In movie parlance, that would be a systemic anomaly in the matrix, right? Where then they have to destroy the matrix and then rebuild it again from scratch. And, um, you know, so it's like, it, it's actually based on real math. To your question, having to do with the people left behind. I've observed both in housing and the demand for things like cryptocurrency, a trend that says that the demand for these assets is increasing and it is increasing to catch up with a long run depression in, in terms of what we in finance call a quantitative easing that has uh, depressed the natural inflation curve of assets on this planet. And you can depress that stuff, but eventually it's going to catch back up and it's beginning to catch back up. And uh, what you're seeing is that the, the, the valuations and the, or not just the valuations, but the true value of those assets to a society, whether they be cryptocurrency, which is an alternative to federally regulated currency policy that is unconstrained by it, and it essentially free runs where the, the government uh, controls the curve. And in things like housing, where the demand for the properties is so high that the law of supply and demand takes over. So if you, it's, it's very hard to foresee a point where those prices are going to come down, particularly in the most highly demanded areas. It'll be a while. So what you've got there then is a problem of how do you create access to things like home ownership in particular, because you know people have to have a place to live. So here's the weird dealie of that, right? Not appearing yet on any of my social media, I am the chairman of the subcommittee on equity share innovation for the promotion of home ownership access of the Los Angeles initiative of the Office of the Comptroller of the Currencies Project Reach, which is designed to improve access to housing access to for small businesses. And in particular, my subcommittee is responsible uh, looking for solutions to solving the preventing foreclosures on of homes that are uh, in danger where the homeowner no longer can afford the mortgage. They have failed the ability to repay test and, and according to the law cannot be issued anymore. So everybody says, we're gonna have to throw them out of the house. I go, no, it's got, there has to be a better way to do that. So I'm looking for ways to do that. And it looks like the way to do that is to alter the capital stack construction of the housing market to change the line on where equity and debt are distributed between the homeowner and the investor and the debt holder in two levels that are recalibrated to the ability to earn a living in the next economy are set up. It's a very, very difficult problem with a lot of moving parts, but it's being explored uh, through a committee process 
where essentially, you know, because I'm the ringmaster, I get to ask all kinds of weird questions. The biggest area where there is concern is in how to create access that can accommodate the needs of what are called low to moderate income persons who have not yet been able to gain entry into the housing market, which is basically a substitute for not able to access the American dream. So at the moment, you know, the, the answer to part of that question is uh, there's got to be a lot of rethinking about how everything works. The most difficult part of it is that you have to do it within a regulatory structure that is fairly rigid and is not likely to change because no one wants to do things that will restart the same kinds of trouble curves that showed up before the 2008 crisis, because that will result in the end of the roaring 20s in the United States to look like the end of the roaring 20s a century ago. And the main difficulty there is how to make that instrumentation work such that you don't really have to change a lot of laws because, or, or policies because the political system in this country is so fragile right now that to attempt to make any large changes, you can't do you know, an FDR type radical policy change. You can't do a, you know, a Reagan-like radical policy change right now. There's just too much inertia and too much resistance to make it happen. So the challenge really to the world or, or the, the world that works with the economy right now is to find a way to do it around the edges of all of the impediments. So, you know, probably the best way to think about it, and, you know, because Brian's here, it's going down a mountain at very high speed through a very complex slalom course, blindfolded. That's the task that's in front of the system. And it's kind of the way I, in my own head, look at the metaphor of this committee that I'm heading up and, and trying to figure out a solution that will work. The good part is I got all these banks, I have all these non-government organizations, uh, I have all of these infrastructure companies, have all these government agencies, and they are really working their tails off to look for something that will work. And they are very, very forthright about where the impediments are. And you know, so I listen to them and go, well, we could try it this way. And they go like, yeah, or no, or whatever. And the conversations I've had have turned out to be very high up. And I, I will confess, so, and I do go fanboy in these conversations, right? So I, I actually had one where everybody said like, you, you went a little too far fanboy because I got on this conference call, uh, you know, one of these Microsoft Teams conference calls and it was at the FDIC and like the chairman of the FDIC, Helena McWilliams shows up. And it, I, I literally on the, and they could hear me on the phone. I was like, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> and, going, and she's going, well, stop that. <laughs> We're here to work. <laughs> I'm sorry, ma'am, you know, I, and I do all that kind of stuff, but it was total fanboy. But the fact of the matter is what the message there is that, that top to bottom in the system, everybody's working because nobody wants to see 2008 happen again. Nobody wants, or even worse than that, at the end of our roaring 20s, which we are about to live through, we don't want to see a crash of 29 happen again. And that's a worry bead that should never go out of, of the, uh, the, the thoughts of the people, both, you know, and that's just the economic aspect of it. the sociological aspect of it. Oh, my God, there's all kinds of stuff that's, a, that, that's about to happen as we reconfigure what we are or are not. You know, I've got a whole different sort of thoughts about, you know, what's the what's the fate of wokeness in a society that's partying too much? It's kind of hard to tell, you know.
Yeah, there are a lot of, uh, yeah, definitely a lot of uh, moving parts there. And I, you, what you what you articulated here is, you know, this is the this is the challenge, right? I mean, the the concept of of changing the financial constraints on people to afford ownership and you know or afford property. I mean, we all, if we all recall that, you know, the the housing crisis, the financial crisis of you know two thousand eight, two thousand nine, was the result of good intentions, right? We wanted to make sure that folks were able to you know to have a stake, and that's why that's what resulted in you know lowering the borrowing standards. And of course, people gaming the system, and that's always an issue. I mean, I, but I, I think what you have alluded to, and I'm optimistic that we'll be able to see something that's uh, more. I guess I'm optimistic that rethinking of how we allocate, you know, debt and uh, and equity and and ownership is going to be really critical going forward. I think just the last points we'd love to ask, you know, since you have existing both in the in the ham radio world and also with the on Clubhouse, I'd just love love you to kind of help us wrap up with with some optimistic thoughts about what makes you hopeful for the future, based you know, based on your experiences and and certainly on an interpersonal dimension, what good are you know are these technologies going to do for us? Oh, these technologies are, are, are really, really exciting, right? I mean, you know, um, the ability, I mean, I literally can turn on a radio the size, not much bigger than my cell phone and meet strangers. So here, I'll, I'll leave you with this one because there's so many stories, all right? But this is the social of tomorrow, uh, audio social, whether it happens on Clubhouse, whether it happens uh, in, in any other type of media. So... I was on my way to pick a friend up at the airport and I have this radio in, in my car and I, in the car, I also have a, a little device that talks to the radio that uh, is then uh, connected to the Wi-Fi hotspot in my phone and allows me to use the radio to talk on this ham radio stuff around the world. And I get this guy from England, his name's Russ. And I talked to Russ before and Russ, the last time I talked to them had told me, you know, what kind of tea to buy and a particular brand and that I should, I should buy it and I should try it because it tastes really, really good. So I get a hold of Russ on my way to the airport and, and I tell him, hey, I got that, I, I got that tea you, you, you get. And he says, well, let's talk about you know, how you make it and all that kind of stuff. And here I am being a Californian, right? I tell him, well, I got this really nice Tivana thing that, that you put the bag in and you put the water in and then you let it steep and you can watch it. And then you take that and to keep it warm, I put it into a, a Yeti cup that keeps it warm, you know, I, I make a big batch of it and I can do that and drink it while I'm working. And, you know, this is an English guy, right? And, and, and so all of a sudden he goes, oh, Dennis, 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 you have a lot to learn about tea, lad. <laughs> and I'm driving to the airport and this guy starts telling me about boiling water. He tells me about the tea and he, you know, you need to stop using all those useless yank tea things and get yourself a proper bone china cup. <laughs> and I'm trying not to crash the car, right? <laughs> because I'm trying to navigate my way to LAX and, and not get stopped by the cops who, you know, are kind of picky around LAX. And, and I say to myself, this is the new tomorrow. This is, this is a world where you have to be able to pivot cultures instantaneously and keep your sense of humor as you interact with people that may have extremely different views of the world from you. You know, if you got on Clubhouse at two o'clock in the morning 
you're not talking to Americans. You're talking to people in Europe and Africa, all right, all across Eurasia. And you're interacting with them and their cultures and their cultural beliefs and norms, which are very, very different from here. And most of those parts of the world, they don't care about American woke. You talk to those guys, they, they'll say things like, oh, you know, uh, you need to shut up about that because you know what? That's just your latest form of being an ugly American talking to everybody else in the world like you know what you're talking about. And, you know, like we didn't believe you back then, you know, you keep that up. We're going to do the same thing. We always tell you guys, whenever you start getting a little bit too uppity, we always say the same thing. Yankee, go home and, you know, think about it before you come out here. And next time you do, you might want to respect what, what we think. And we're about to be in a world where all of that will be in place simultaneously. And I think it's an exciting world because it's, if, if we, we learn nothing else from it, we're going to learn what real tolerance means on this planet, which is something that in our own insular worlds, we can get away with ignoring. Uh, you know, and, and I love America, right? We are, I think, the world's loudest and most amazing dysfunctional family. And the thing is, the rest of the world knows we are. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, that's where we're going, man. You know, and I'm very, very, I'm very, very positive about the yeah. fact that we're, you know, we're going to learn a heck of a lot more about ourselves in the next decade, I think, than, than we ever thought we did. We are. Uh, absolutely. This is the uh, the miracle of being connected to 7 billion people on uh, uh, in real time. So, um, well, with that, I think we're, we're just about out of time here. So I want to thank you, Dennis, for joining us. And uh, again, this has been the Reset Salon podcast with uh, Ed McGuire, Julie Albright, and Brian Hayashi. And we've been talking about surviving and rebuilding from our COVID-19 reality. And we will be building a new future. Just a reminder to all those who are listening, please smash that like button and tell your friends we want to build our community we're always open for questions inquiries uh and of course uh lots of jokes so please please share your feedback and uh and come back again and uh we'll sign off and here's until the next time 